Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Those of you who are with us for the first time tonight, we are continuing to study through the book of Philippians. Peace of the week has been joy to the world. The idea is that this world is becoming an increasingly dark and depressing place, and it's about time that we shine a little light in our community. That's exactly what Jesus called us to do. The Sermon on the Mount, he told us that we're to be soft, light, and leaven. Like a, a salt and leaven, or, both, or a salt rather, is a preservative. Leaven is something that spreads or expands, basically yeast, and when it does its thing chemically, it causes the whole, the whole lump of dough to rise. In other words, it affects what's around it and spreads. Christians are to be a preservative in the culture we live in, and we are supposed to be spreading throughout our culture, changing our culture as we come in contact with it, and also we're supposed to be light. Now, we don't emanate the light. We're not the source of the light. We're like the moon. We just reflect the light. The, the, the moon just reflects the light of the sun. Of course, depending on where it is on our planet, that depends upon how well we get to see it, whether it's a crescent moon or a full moon or a new moon or whatever. Well, that's what we are. We're supposed to reflect the light of the sun in this world. One of the ways that we can do that is by having what it is that God intends for us to have. Now, we know God wants to have salvation. God doesn't just concern himself with eternity. I would say that God's predominant concern is with eternity, but that doesn't mean that God neglects the time that we have here on this earth, and neither should we. God wants us to be an influencing factor during our lives. In John 10, verse 10, in contrasting himself with Satan, he said, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy but I am come that you might have life. And I love this, this second part. It's one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. That you have life and that you have it. The King James translates it more abundantly. If you wanted a literal word-for-word translation, it would take about this much page room in order to do it. It means exceedingly, excessively, over and above, beyond measure. Some have said you would literally translate it super added. The idea being, yes, I came that you might have eternal life. That was his primary purpose. But not just that you would have eternal life. He said, I came so that your time here on this earth would be a life that, as David would describe it in the 23rd Psalm, my cup runneth over. I'm overflowing with a blessed life. What we've been focusing on this week is simply this. God wants his people to be a joyous people. Sadly, some of the most miserable, sour people I've ever known in my life were members of the Lord's Church. Now, I don't indict all of people. In fact, last night, I tried to emphasize heavily, Lord's people are good people. Some of the best people I've ever known. But at the same time, although they're in the minority, some of the sourest people I've ever, know, ever known have been the Lord's people. 
And it makes you wonder, what about the joy of salvation? Don't you realize you've been forgiven of your sins? You're going to overcome the grave. You're going to have an eternal inheritance. Brother, you've got something to be happy about. Okay, maybe life's not perfect. There's a lot of stuff that makes me mad. There's a lot of stuff that makes me sad. There's a lot of things that go on in this life, and I just shake my head, and I think, why does it have to be this way? I go to bed every night, and I talk to my father, and I think about the things that I do have. And amazingly, all that stuff has a tendency just kind of to melt away. When I realize what I have, I am a child of the king. I wear the name of Jesus. And the best is yet to come, as we emphasized last night from Philippians chapter 2. Paul says, go ahead and kill me. Or chapter 1, go ahead and kill me. You kill me, that's fine. To depart and be with Christ it's not just good, it's not just better, it's far better. Now, I'm a little bit of a nerd. I grew up uh, in the 70s and 80s, and I was a big fan of Star Wars. Now, some of you like Star Wars, some of you are going to think I'm just a weirdo. That's okay. you got to learn to love me too. That's what we talk about. we got to learn to love each other despite our differences. I can remember when I was a kid watching Star Wars, and some of you are going to say, what is this guy even talking about? There's a scene at the end of that movie. Well, one of the lead characters, a guy by the name of Ben Kenobi, is in a fight with the bad guy. And the bad guy, everybody knows who Darth Vader is. And he tells him in that fight, go ahead and strike me down. Go ahead and kill me. You can do that, but when you do, you'll make me more powerful than I already am. More powerful than you can imagine. Paul was saying that in essence to his enemies and adversaries. Go ahead and kill me. The only thing you do about killing me is give me that which I've been living my whole life for. No matter what circumstances you face in life, if you're a faithful child of God, when you die, you get to something that is far, far better than anything that you can have in this life. We have got a good reason to be joyous people. Think about the impact we have on our community in a negative way if we're not joyous people. Would you want to come be a part of a group of people who look like they were always sad, always unhappy, always grumpy, always complaining, always negative? Most of the people in the world, they already get exposed to that mess. They want an escape from it. And the church needs to be a place where they realize there's good news. There's something to be happy about in this life. There is a cause for joy. That's why it's important for us to show that. Why would anybody want to be a Christian if Christians aren't joyous people? You know why everybody likes to go to Disneyland? What's, what, what's its nickname? Happiest place on earth, right? Everybody likes Disneyland. Coincidentally, I've never even been to Disneyland. And I may be the one weirdo who doesn't want to go. I care less about going to Disneyland because it doesn't seem like a happy place to me. It seems like an expensive place to me. <laughs> That's what I think. Because I'm the one who gets to put the bill. Everybody else is having a good time. I'm just running a tally in my head. If you get <laughs> but everybody likes Disneyland. Little kids like Disneyland. I know a lot of adults who love Disneyland as much as the children do. And that's great. That's fantastic. I can remember for years and years, whenever a team won the Super Bowl, they'd always have the quarterback, and they'd have a little commercial that would always be on the next day. And they'd interview the quarterback, and they'd say, you know, uh, Tom Brady, you just won the Super Bowl. What are you going to do now? I'm going to Disneyland. Happiest place on earth. They built a, a marketing empire off of that slogan. 
want you want to go to a happy place. You want to you want to break from your mundane life, from your routine, from that gloom and normal cycle of get up, go to work, come home, get up, go to work, come home. Come to Disneyland, the happiest place on. Wonder what impact it would have in our communities in our world if they viewed the Church of Christ as the most joyous place in our community. Man, those people, I don't know what it is about them, but they've got something, and I want to know more about it. They've got, we would like to teach them, a more abundant life. There's a lot of things that I don't worry about being a Christian. A lot of things that just, I just, they don't take up my time, they don't take up my energy, because I'm trying to follow Jesus, and Jesus says, this is the path I want you to follow. That's what we hope to accomplish this week, to revive that within ourselves, there is so, so often a tendency for us to become negative. You know, there's problems in the church, too. Just like in the world, there's problems in the church. Since the beginning of the church, there has been this constant ebb and flow, this total war between the church and the world, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of men. And it'll always be that way because the church is populated by people who start out as, as citizens of this world. And we have to forsake that. We leave the world behind. We're called out. We're added to Christ. And we spend the rest of our lives trying to learn how to be citizens of the kingdom when it seems to come so naturally for us to be citizens of this world. So there's always going to be problems in the church. One thing that I have always tried not to do, and sometimes I'm really good at it, sometimes I'm really bad at it, is let those problems start to change the way I feel about my faith. You know, it's easy to become negative about the church because of problems that exist in the church. And I'm not saying that preachers and elders are, are at greater risk, but sometimes we see things that maybe a lot of members don't ever even know about. Get exposed to things, learn about things, people come into your office, people call you in the middle of the night, and they just dump all of this pile of problems right there in your lap. And sometimes you as a tenant think, man, this is so Oh, we've got so many problems. We've got so much we need to work on. Or we read Brotherhood publications or see things on the Internet about what's happening in congregations and other places, what's happening at certain schools, and you know what? There's plenty to be worried about. But there's also plenty to be thankful for. All have the same problems. Read the book of Corinthians. You don't think you're worried about what was going on in the other places? That's the church that had problems. I'll put it to you this way. I have yet to meet a church of the Lord's people anywhere on the earth today. Now, I'm not saying they don't exist. I'm saying I haven't met them, and I've met a lot of them, that is as bad as Corinth was. Have you ever been to one as bad as Corinth? If Corinth was in our communities, we'd burn their church bus down, or we'd go in the middle of the night and vandalize the building and take the name Church of Christ down, we wouldn't want anybody to think that we were associated with those folks. That's how bad it is. That's usually not as bad for us in our communities. But even though there's a lot of bad, here's Paul. Rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. We're going to study out of chapter 4 tonight. Uh, I know we're kind of hopping around, but uh, just to be blunt, I'm, I'm preaching this based on where my mind is at <laughs> in these particular day, And my mind is not in chapter 3 tonight, even though chronologically that's where we should be. I want us to look at chapter 4. And this is going to kind of be the other side of the coin from what we talked about Sunday night. On Sunday night, we looked at Philippians chapter 2, and we talked about being a servant. 
We're trying to cultivate this fruit of the Spirit known as joy. We're trying to learn to be people who are filled with joy, that it naturally emanates from us, that we are a people who rejoice always, and we're looking at certain things that we can do, or in some cases not do, that will help us to have this joy, to help bring it to the surface and not let it just be something that's either non-existent or buried under so many problems that nobody even sees it. And on Sunday night, we talked about being a servant. And if you want true joy in life, you've got to learn to be a servant. Because if you go through life expecting everyone to serve you, there's going to be a lot of times you're going to be really disappointed, really upset, really angry, really frustrated because people aren't serving you like you're the center of the world. But if you're a servant, you never run out of opportunities to serve. If you find your joy in serving in Christ, you never run out of a, a reservoir of things that can cause you joy because there's a constant need, constant opportunity to serve. Plus, it takes the focus off the self and puts it on other people. A, a preacher told me years ago, when you're having a bad day in the office, turn off the computer, close the Bible, pack up, leave, and go to the nursing home. You will not have a bad day anymore. You will walk out of that nursing home forgetting about most of those things that were weighing you down when you walked into it. When you see the people who are angry, when you see the people who are better, when you see the folks who are shutting in, who are suffering, who are hurting, you start thinking, you know what? I gotta be thankful for it. That's the idea of being a servant. It takes the focus off itself and puts it on others. Now the emphasis that we had Sunday night was this. We live in a culture that makes it very hard for us to adopt that mentality. That's why we emphasize chapter 2 and verse 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. We've got to adapt, we've got to adopt, we've got to cultivate the mind of Christ and do that in a culture that is the polar opposite of glorifying being a servant. Our culture denigrates being a servant. It's inferior. The low man on the totem pole is the servant, but in the kingdom of God, those roles are completely reversed. He that is greatest among you will be your servant. And so we're going to have to fight against our culture. We're going to have to fight against our nature to become Christ-minded servants. But if we want joy, then we're going to have to do it. Tonight's the other side of the coin and probably the other great problem that we have in our culture. Coincidentally, we're going to be focusing on a scripture that is usually, and I don't think it's used inappropriately, but technically we use it out of context most of the time. We're talking about Philippians 4.13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I see this used to talk about weight loss. I see it used to talk about uh, uh, overcoming sickness, dealing with a difficult person, uh, going through hardship. We use the phrase, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, as this kind of generic uh, application that refers to everything. And it's fine, it's not an abuse of the Scripture. In principle, it's true, but if we want to keep it in its context, Paul uses this in reference to a very specific thing. And what he's using it to talk about is contentment. I put those two thoughts together. Paul is going to talk about the joy that comes from learning to be content. And then he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know what that tells me? Learning to be content is going to be something that I'm going to have to rely upon the strength of Christ to do. 
it's not easy. Look with me, Philippians chapter 4. In the context, verse number 10 is actually where the context of this last half of the chapter begins. And Paul is talking about, he's talking about how they in the past had been able to financially support him. But then there was a time when they were unable to. And he and, and now they have they become able again to financially support him in his missions and in his efforts that he's doing. And he speaks about how their, their support has flourished again, rebloomed, so to speak. But then he quickly says, not that I speak in respect of want. Listen, Bernie, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm just saying how thankful I am that you're able to help again. I'm not complaining that there was a time that you weren't able to. I'm just saying I'm thankful that you are. I don't speak in respect of want or in respect of lack. I'm not complaining. I'm not saying that I'm hurting, that I'm doing without, and it's your fault. Paul says, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, I know how to be a base. I know how to obey. I had a whole lot of money back in that few words. I have learned. You know what that tells me? Even the great apostle Paul, with all of his faith, all of his sacrifice, all of his ability, all of his commitment, Contentment didn't come naturally to him. It was something that he had to learn. And when I read this passage, I always think in my mind, I always go back to James 1, verses 1 and 2. James has my brethren counted all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, various trials. Now that sounds strange to us. We generally don't look forward to it. We certainly don't celebrate when we go through hardship in life. We go through our lives trying to avoid hardships. And James says, no, when you're going through difficulty, count the joy. Rejoice in that. Why in the world would I rejoice in the hardship? Knowing this, because you, you have information, you have knowledge about it. You understand something that maybe a lot of people outside of Christ don't know. You know this. The trying of your faith produces patience. You understand there is a purpose to your pain. We talked about that last night, didn't we? Now understand there may be a benefit to your suffering. What is the benefit? What is the benefit of going through a difficulty? It makes you more patient. And patience, by the way, is a fruit of the Spirit. Patience, coincidentally, according to Peter, is one of the Christian virtues. Tells us to add to our faith, knowledge, and all these things. Patience. Love, joy, peace. Patience, Galatians 5. Patience is something that is very, very valuable. But now here's the funny thing about it. The only way you get patient is to not get what you want for a long time and to learn to be okay with that. You stop thinking about that. That's the, you, don't, you can't buy patience. You can't, you can't download it. You can't steal it. You can't get it as a gift. The only way that you get patience, everybody wants patience, and you might say, you know, I need more patience. There's an old joke that preachers love to tell that, you know, the woman says, Lord, give me patience and give it to me right now. You know, well, it doesn't work that way. I had a guy tell me a long time ago, I prayed for patience, God gave me teenagers. So be careful when you ask for things from God. Patience is, is, is only the way you, the only way you get it is to not get what you want. 
I want this pain to go away. I want to get out of debt. I want to be healthier. I want to have scriptures memorized. I want, I want, I want, I want, I want. Well, you can have it. But you've got to learn to be content with where you are first. Patience comes when you don't get what you want for a long time. And you finally go, you know what? I've learned in whatsoever state I am to be content. The best definition I've ever heard for contentment came from a lady by the name of Mabel Martin. George and Mabel Martin were members of East Hill where I grew up. George owns a local radio radio station, and every morning for most of my life, uh, I listen to George read the morning. I stayed with my grandmother. She'd get up and fix the breakfast as I wait for school, and she'd listen to the local radio, and George would read the He'd read the news every day. And then, of course, I'd see George at church on Sundays and on Wednesdays. And when I grew up preached in these fields, then I had Mabel as one of our ladies in ladies' Bible class. Well, George and Mabel, they went through a real rough patch for a while because their grandson, Alexander, when he was 10 years old, died of a heart attack at school. He was born with a hole in his heart and wasn't known about, and he just, just died one day at school. They went to his funeral, and we went to his funeral, and came back. And a few weeks after that, Alexander's mother dropped dead of a heart attack on the treadmill at the gym. I sat for that funeral, and on the way home from that funeral, George fell asleep and went off the road and crashed and killed him in a car wreck and broke Mabel all to pieces. She survived. A couple years after that, Mabel always walked with the cane after that. And this is a woman who's vibrant and intelligent. And we were talking about contentment one day in ladies' Bible class. And I just asked the question, what does contentment even mean? Mabel's hand went up. And she said, contentment is when you don't wish for things that you don't have. It's when you learn to be thankful for what you already do. Contentment is not getting everything that you want. Contentment is being thankful for what you have. Now, coming from her, that definition meant more probably than if it come from me, and that's why I told you about her background. Contentment is when I don't get everything I want. Contentment is when I look around and go, here's what I've got. Thank you, Lord, this is good enough. And so Paul said, I had to learn. It's not something that comes natural. There's a yearning and a desire that is built into it. And then we live in a culture that preys upon that. You ever seen a commercial? I saw this several years ago. It was so funny. And it's about cell phones. And maybe this, this shows us in our, our yearning for more and new and better more than anything else in our culture. But here's a guy, and in the commercial, he's looking at his phone, and he's watching television, and they're showing this new and improved phone, whatever he has, his next version. And he's looking at his phone, all of a sudden now, his phone that was perfectly fine, he can't stand his phone anymore. He wants that phone. And so he decides he's going to go get it. He goes to the store, and he's waiting in this big, long line, and he gets up there, and he checks up, and he's so happy, he's smiling, he's excited, he's doing all this stuff, and he's in his car, and he's on his way home, and on the way home, he's got his phone on his dashboard, and he sits at a stop line, and there's a big billboard that they're just putting up, and they're painting over an old one. And what they're painting over is a billboard of the phone that he just bought, and what they're putting up is a billboard of the next version of that phone that they're coming out with. And all of a sudden, he just kind of does this. And you know what they were promoting? 
they're promoting a program to where instead of buying a phone, you basically pay them constantly every month. I think they call the program Next or something like that. And so whenever a new version of the phone comes out, all you've got to do is take it to the store and get it to them and they give you the new one. Never mind that you never stop paying for this phone. Are you seeing where I'm going here? We get you hooked. We've got you locked in. You're just going to pay us constantly for the rest of your life. And every now and then we'll throw you a phone so that you'll think you're getting something out of this deal. We live in a culture that preys on our desire for more and better business. Yet Paul says, if you want joy, you've got to learn to be content with what you got. Whatever condition you're in, Lord, I want to be healed. Well, that's good. And maybe you will be healed. But what if not? Paul prayed many times that God would take away his thorn in the flesh. And a lot has been written in commentaries on what is, what is that thorn in the flesh. Nobody really knows. There seems to be some biblical evidence that maybe Paul had a vision problem. Maybe even he was what we would have called legally blind. And he was asking God to heal that. Wouldn't it be strange to get an apostle and have a miraculous gift of healing but then have some physical infirmity that you couldn't do anything about isn't that kind of an interesting irony that perhaps was the case with Paul? And so he would pray, whatever it was, that God would take it away. And you know what God's answer to him was? My grace is good enough. That's sufficient. You think maybe that might play into how Paul learned in whatever condition he was in to be content? I want to be healed. And if I'm healed, I'll be thankful. But what if I'm not? I want to be out of debt. And if I get out of debt, I'll be thankful. And I'll do so many good things for the Lord with my money. But what if you don't? Are you still going to be thankful? Are you still going to do good things for the Lord with what you have? Isn't it funny? We always like to think about what we would do. Y'all ever played that game? But what would you do if somebody gave you a million dollars? Well, I'd build a new church building. I'd build an orphanage in China. I, you know, I'll just, well, that's great. Well, what are you going to do with $5 you got in the pocket? Oh, I'm going to do that. <laughs> I think the rest somewhere if he's as faithful and little we give him much Paul said I had to learn this lesson that whatever condition I'm in I can be content. I know how to do things if I'm locked up in a jail cell having been beat within an inch of my life I can still sing and praise midnight I'm still rejoicing and I also know how to abound I'm instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer any process. You know what? If everything is great, it's not going to change anything. I'm still serving God with all of my being. I'm still glorifying God in my body. I'm still living for Christ. I'm using my resources to serve Him. I'm filled with joy. Well, what if it all goes away? It doesn't change it. I can still do everything that I'm doing now. Now, maybe I can't do as much because I don't have the same resources that I can still do. How many times we see in the Scripture God boiling all down for us and focusing in on what really is interesting, attitude of the heart. Here's a woman that has what we would equate as basically a couple of people. That's what she's got. And this is if you have to save the account. Both the piggy bank, this is what's left. What am I going to do with it? Give it to the Lord. 
here are these other people who basically were dumping in piles of money. You know what? They dumped in piles of money. They go home and they got bigger piles of money. He said, she gets it. She gets it. She understands that she's given above all of these others cumulatively. Why? Because she gets what service to Christ is all about. It's doing what I can with what I have, not what I would do if I had more. And Paul said, I had to learn this lesson. Now, it's not an easy to learn lesson, and that's why he says, I can do all things through Christ. Who strengthens it. Remember what we said in chapter 4 and verse 4? Rejoice, command. Always, duration. Right in the middle, the meat of the sandwich, in the Lord's location. If I'm going to rejoice always, I've got to be in the Lord. If I'm going to have the strength to learn contentment rather than yielding and giving in to materialism, giving in to the desires of my culture and the desires of my flesh, if I'm going to do that, I'm going to need his strength. I can't do that on my own. Hold the place there and turn back to the Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 6. While you're doing that, I want to make mention of another passage we won't have time to actually go to. But in Proverbs chapter 30, verses 7 through 9, you've got the prayer of the wise man saying, Lord, here, here's the two things that I ask for. Don't give me riches and don't give me poverty. Feed me with bread that is sufficient for me. Kind of makes me think of the Lord's prayer, give us this day our daily bread. I'm, I'm not asking for food tomorrow because I may not even have tomorrow. Why am I worried about tomorrow? I may not even see it. Lord, will you feed me today? I need something to feed me today. Daily bread. Take care of me today. Remember what David said in the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Remember what Paul just said? Not that I speak in respect of want. That word means lack. It doesn't mean you get everything you want. Lord, I want a new house. That's called a prosperity gospel. And you know what? It's a popular gospel. You don't believe it? Look at the I think. Church of roughly 40,000 people. They literally have a church building in a basketball room. Because people want a gospel that says, God wants to give you money and riches and wealth and everything that your little heart desires. You saw it recently like I did. His wife saying, this isn't about serving God. It's about you. It's about being happy because God wants you to be happy. I heard a preacher say many years ago, it's one of those profound aha moments. He said, God is not interested in you being happy. He's not interested in your happiness. He's interested in your holiness. The coincidence is if you're holy, you will be happy. Remember, rejoice in the Lord. That's where joy is found. That's where true happiness is found. In Christ. And if you're holy, acceptable unto God, Romans 12, 1 and 2, then you'll have that happiness. But when you try to put the cart before the horse and seek your own happiness first, then you wind up buying into a false gospel. And so the the wise man said, I don't want riches and I don't want poverty. I just want enough food to take, I, I, I want enough food for today. And here's why I don't want riches, because I'm afraid if I get riches, then I would be full and say, who is the Lord? I've learned to trust in my riches rather than in the Lord who gave me. And I don't want poverty because I'm afraid that I would be tempted to steal 
rather than to rely upon you to feed me. David, the father of this wise man, said, I've been young and am now old, and here's two things I haven't seen. The righteous forsaken of his seed begging bread. Jesus would say it a little differently in Matthew chapter 7. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, and in the context, all these things are our physical material needs. All these things shall be added unto you. That's just as much a promise as he that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Jesus says if you seek God's kingdom first, if you put Christ at the center of your life, if your joy comes from serving Him, you get your priorities in order. The beauty is your circumstances can't affect your joy. Because if God blesses you with abundance, that's great. If God tries you with lack, it's okay. I've learned whatever state I'm in. Now here in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul elaborates on this idea of contentment, picked up in verse number 6. Here's how you get contentment. Godliness with contentment, he says, the King James says, is great gain. You know what word that is? Riches. You want to be rich? I've yet to meet anybody that says, no, I don't want to be rich. You want to be rich? Yeah, I'd love to be rich. Well, first of all, as an American, you already are rich. One of the hardest lessons I learned in missions, but probably the one that I needed more than any other, was that every time I read about a rich man in the Bible, I'm reading about me. Well, you're just a middle-class American. Yeah, I know, and I'm rich. Because most of the world looks at the middle class as a step up. It's rich. When we went into these countries in Central America, I began to see what not rich was. And then I started thinking, oh, my word. All those times that I read about the rich man in Lazarus, and I read about poor Lazarus laying at the gate having dogs licking his sores and just begging for the crumbs off the rich man's table, and the rich man apparently throwing those crumbs away and not feeding this poor man who's literally at his gate. And I thought, how callous. How, how, how did that, you know what that guy deserves to go to hell? You're going to sit there and watch somebody in that condition and not do anything about it? Then the Lord said, oh, yeah, watch this, Brandon. You're that rich man. What are you doing about suffering? You ever, you ever throw anything away after you've done eating? My grandmama grew up in depression. I told you all about Big Mama. Big Mama influenced my life. Well, I preach a lot about Big Mama. I learned a lot of lessons from Big Mama. Family. About as many as I learned in the church service. And Big Mama... Never threw anything away. When she got done, when supper was done, this is not a joke, this is not an exaggeration, this isn't just some preacher illustration. This is 100% true story. If there was one spoon full of potatoes left, it went into a bowl and went in the refrigerator. I kid you not. The woman did not throw away a bite of food. Because she grew up in a time when a bite of food might be about all you got, just a little bit more than that, spread around the table of nine kids. You know where Big Mama's Tupperware came from? Remember those butter bowls? Had the lids on them? Well, when she got done eating with the, with the butter, she'd wash them out, put them in the, in the cabinet, and that was her Tupperware. And so whenever you had leftover food, she put it in there, and she put the lid on it, and she put it in the refrigerator. And that was great. So you went looking for butter. <laughs> it was like playing the match game. <laughs> oh, that's Oprah. That don't mean. Hey, butter, all right. That's what it was like growing up in her house. 
Because she knew what it was like to not have anything. And she knew it was like not to waste anything. And I'm not going to tell you that I never do it, but I will at least tell you this. It grieves me any time I see a story from the way that Even if it's just four or five French fries left on a happy meal. Because I've literally sat in the homes of people that ate hand to mine. First mission trip I went on was to Liberia, Costa Rica. We were in the tunnel. We were in the ghetto. We were the, the place was called uh, Corazon de Jesus, uh, and that basically translates the heart of Jesus. That was the name of the neighborhood, but it was a rough place. Jesus was not in that neighborhood. It was, it was a rough place. But we get invited into the tunnel. We studied the Bible with them, and the whole week is interesting. The mama never would come in and sit with us. Now she had like grown children in her house. And, and they studied with us the whole time. But the mother, she would not come in. In fact, she stood in the kitchen just right around the door the whole time. And I just happened to see her. She stood there and listened, but she would not come in. Well, one day she did come in, and she sat down at the table with us, and she's in the setting. I'm thinking, this is great. Well, all of a sudden she jumps up, and she says something in Spanish, and she leaves. I'm like, boy, who does this anyway? And I really, I thought, man, we made her mad. We were talking about the politics and things like that. And I thought, man, we made her mad. Well, about five minutes later, she comes walking back in, and she goes in the kitchen, and she's rattling around, and then she comes back in, and here's what she has. She has some kind of little orange-looking cake, and she has some kind of little orange-looking drink on plates, and she gives it to every one of us. And I asked my translator, what is that with this? And he said, she went to the store and bought that cake and bought this drink, because, and she apologized that she forgot to show up hospitality as guests in her home. And all we had heard, this is my first trip, so I'm scared of everything. And all I've been preaching is don't eat or drink anything. You don't eat people out, you don't drink, you know, all that. And I'm thinking, oh, no, we can't eat this. You know, and I'm thinking, well, how am I going to tell this woman? And I talked to my translator, and I asked him about it. Austin Caesar's it was. Austin knows who Caesar is. And, and, and Caesar said, let me put it this way. These people don't eat this stuff normally. They don't have the money for this. I looked at him and I said, will it kill me? <laughs> and he said, no. But you may wish you were dead. <laughs> and, so, and I said, okay, we're going to eat and drink. And so we did. <laughs> but you know, I learned a lesson with that. It's not the widow of the scriptures, but she has a son heart. I have had it. I don't think it's that. I feel important. It's a gift in my home, and I'm going to honor it. Now, I'm going to honor it. I live in a culture that is so affluent, and yet we have the despicable audacity to suggest that we're not rich. I don't care if you're in debt up in your eyeballs, you're still rich. And Paul says, You want to learn joy? Be right with God, godly, with contentment. Be content with what your condition is. That is riches. Things into the money. I've been right with God, and I'm content with my condition. That is great. Value. Here's the reason why, because we brought nothing into this world. It's certain that we'll take nothing out. When you were born, you were two things. You were naked and hungry, every one of us. What's the first thing they do to you? They put clothes on you, and they feed you. As soon as you come into this world, 
So from the very get-go, you get ushered into something better. You start out naked and hungry, you get clothed and fed. And so that's why he says in his next breath, having food and raiment, therewith let us be content. What did he leave out? I'm not talking about iPhones. I'm not talking about cars and direct TV. House, right? Shelter. Now we always say, what are the necessities? Food, clothes, and shelter, right? He doesn't even include that. You know why I think he doesn't include that? Because he technically can live without it. Didn't the Lord say to those who said, Lord, I want to follow you? Be careful what you ask for. The birds have nests. The foxes have holes. The Son of Man does not have a place where he lays his head. I don't get off work at 3 o'clock and sit on the couch like this to me. I travel. I depend upon God's providence. depend upon God's care. If you're going to follow me, you don't have to learn how to do that too. Paul said, this is how you learn to take Realize what you've already got. You're born naked and hungry. You've got food and clothes. You're already better off than when you started. You've got plenty to be content with, to be thankful for. And when you die, you're going to leave it all behind you. And then he gives a real follow in verse 9. David will be rich. Don't misunderstand what he's saying. He doesn't say that if you're rich, you fall into temptation and despair and being foolish and hurtful things that drown in and prediction and destruction. He's not saying it's wrong to be rich. There's a lot of rich people in the Bible. Job was the richest man in the East. And he was a man that God said was perfect, upright, and eschewed evil. Was disgusted by evil. And he was as rich as you could get. Abraham, rich man. David, Solomon, rich man. There's absolutely nothing wrong with being rich. It's not wrong to be rich. That's not his point. I want you to think about how we use that word will sometimes. David will be rich. You all know, remember the story several years ago about the guy who was mountain climbing by himself and a boulder shifted and pinned his arm up against the rock? I'm going to warn you, if you've got a squeamish stomach, you can put your fingers in your ears and go la, 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 la. This guy stays up there for 127 hours. He gets to a point where he realizes help's not coming. Nobody knows where I am. I'm either going to get loose or I'm dying on this mountain. He said, I ain't dying on this mountain. He tries to turn it around his arm. He decides, I'm going to cut my arm off with a box knife. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I mean, what circumstances would cutting your arm off with a box knife be a logical, reasonable decision? Not me. You like to spend something on Oh, but it, it gets worse than that. Here's the problem. You can take a pocket knife as dull or sharp as it may be. You can cut through your arm. Only problem is pocket knives don't cut through bones. I ain't, I ain't found one good enough yet to do that. But he's got to break his arm. He's got to break that bone to cut through. Well, here's the problem. You've ever looked at an x-ray? Your bone kind of does this. You've got to break it twice. Your broken bone? That hurts them. When you don't even know what's happening. Football game, lower shoulder, bam! Oh, all of a sudden it's still fine. You don't know it's coming. And it hurts so bad. Can you imagine knowing I'm fixing to break this and then having the strength and the will to go ahead and do it? Then I have to do it again. And as bad as that is, but you ain't done yet. Now the hard part starts. Now you got to cut your arm off. Oh, and once you're done, here's where it really gets bad. Now you've got to scale down the side of a mountain. 
Oh, now that you're at the bottom of the mountain, guess what? Now you've got a high food bed. I want to ask you a question. Did that man have the will to live? Sure did, didn't he? Guess what? He did. He lived. When Paul says they that will be rich, he's talking about having the desire to be rich that we would equate to the will to live. Under normal circumstances, you would not do what that young man did. But if you wanted to live so bad that you had to do that to live, you would do it. And if you want to be rich so bad that you've got to cheat somebody to do it, or to steal from somebody, or to break the law, or to kill, or hey, let's scale it down. Deny those who are hungry and poor and hurting. But all of a sudden, the sermon stopped being fun and didn't end. It's okay to say, yeah, those that have such a desire to be wealthy that they would steal. Well, I would never do that. That they would cheat, lie on their taxes. I wouldn't do that. They'd kill somebody to get what they had. I wouldn't do that. That they would deny taking care of those that are in need. I would do that. See, sometimes our will for riches is a lot closer to home than we like to be. Says those who will be rich who have that desire that they'll do whatever it takes to obtain and maintain that wealth. He says those people are setting themselves up for destruction and pain and suffering. Now, does that sound like joy? See, that's the lie that we hear in this world all the time. The desire for things, the best illustration I've got for it is the physical appetite. I ate a lot last night. Good. Chili, brown, whatever the ice cream cake. Y'all took an ice cream sandwich and a cake and mixed it together as if both of those weren't good enough on their own. Yeah. But you know what? I got up this morning and I was hungry. And I ate breakfast. This afternoon I got hungry and I ate. No matter how much you eat at one time, you can never... Eat so much that you never be hungry again. And no matter how much material gain you get in this life, you can never get so much that you stop behind. That's why Paul says we've got to learn in whatever state we're in. But he gives us the warning. The love of money is the root of all that. The money is not evil. Money is an animal. It's what we do with it, how we obtain it, and our attitude for it that determines whether or not it is right or wrong. How are we going to have real, true joy in this life? We've got to do what Paul did. Learn to be content just where we are. Learn to count the blessings that we already have and not long for those that we haven't yet obtained. And if we ever get them, we'll thank God and, be, and rejoice in them. And if we don't get them, that's okay. We've learned to be content with what he's already given. One thing that I hope that you will not be content in is to be content. Don't be content where you are. Be where God wants you to be. And he wants you to be in Christ. Rejoice in the Lord. That's where joy is found. If you haven't put Christ on in baptism, you're not in Christ yet. Galatians 3.27 tells us that's how we get into Christ. And until I do that, I'm outside of Christ. And I can never have this joy that Felicia is promising and that God has called me to see. 
And if you have that, but you're still struggling maybe with things of this world, I want you to look at how he ends Philippians chapter 4. In verse number 19, he says, My God shall supply all your needs according to his riches in glory by Jesus Christ. You may not have everything that you want or need in this life, but you know what you can realize? That God is rich. And I'm not just talking about money. I'm talking about rich in all sorts of things, in spiritual blessings, in grace, in mercy, and forgiveness. And he said, all of that you will inherit in glory for Jesus Christ. Are you in Christ? Are you right with Christ? If you're not, we're going to sing a song, win this song, we're encouraging you. And make whatever changes need to be made so that you can be right with God and so that you can have that reason to rejoice always. Can we help you do that? If we can, come on, let's this song Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.